This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. Tonight on the show, we're going to be discussing some of the horrific scenes, the footage that is coming out of Gaza right now. Um, I'm going to be joined all evening by Aaron Bastani. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Michael. Coming up later tonight, and we will also be discussing um, uh, another big story from around the world. 1.7 million Afghans are being expelled from Pakistan. So another story of displacement um, going on right now. I have a great guest on that. We'll also discuss um, Elon Musk seeming to be in favour of fully automated luxury communism. I'll ask Aaron if he is convinced. Straight to our first story. Dozens of people have been killed in an airstrike on an ambulance convoy outside the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza. The Palestine Red Crescent has shared this photo of the immediate aftermath of the attack, and they went on to share this footage of some of the damage. You can see that the side of the ambulance is splattered with blood. The Red Crescent said this. At precisely 4.30, Israeli occupying forces launched an airstrike on Rashid Street in the western part of Gaza. Their target was a group of ambulance vehicles returning from a mission to transport injured individuals to the Rafa border, which included an ambulance affiliated with the Palestinian Red Crescent. Our colleagues were saved by a miracle. So they're saying luckily their colleagues weren't hit, but many people were, as the footage many of you will have now seen shows. Um, Hassam Zomlot is the Palestinian ambassador to the UK. He shared this video taken by someone who witnessed the immediate aftermath of the bombing. really difficult video to watch and there are much much more graphic videos on twitter at the moment where you can see i mean what looked like multiple children who've been killed by the attack obviously lots of people in incredible distress um and yeah images which is just completely shocking to witness we haven't shown them here uh, pretty much basically because youtube would probably then take the stream down um twitter has very different rules um i do actually recommend however difficult it is i do recommend watching the, the footage which is being shared online because it does just show you the real human cost of what we are currently witnessing in in Gaza. Um, Aaron, as I say, we're not, we're not showing the most graphic videos of this. I, I do think and actually hope that many people will will see them. You can see people carrying bloodied children, um, people who look like they're sort of in in that liminal space between death and life, and this is all people who were standing nearby an ambulance convoy. I mean, what can you say about this, Aaron? Well, they are very powerful videos and they're very necessary videos, Michael, because 
that's the fact of the matter. This is what's happening. Um, and our government is giving a green light to this, as is the US government. The US government is giving 13, 14 billion pounds to Israel to help prosecute this war. So it's of the utmost urgency that people know what, what is actually going on. So they know this cannot happen in their names. As this show goes on, we'll talk about uh, the debate regarding protest in support of Gaza in this country moving forward. So I don't want to preempt that conversation. Uh, but there is a reason why millions of people feel very strongly about this, Michael, because they've seen those images, millions of people, millions and millions of people. Okay, they might not all go on a protest, maybe only several hundred thousand will in London. Uh, others elsewhere, of course. But millions of people will see those videos. They'll vote Labour. Conservative, Lib Dem, none of the above. They'll be white, brown, black, and they'll feel disgust. That doesn't mean they support Hamas. They may even think that Israel is legitimate to respond in some manner, but they'll see images with children dying, bleeding out on the streets, uh, attacks on, on hospitals and whatnot, and they will think that is unjust. That's just a fact. And as a result, many will either protest or at least feel that protesters are vindicated and legitimate in what they're doing. So they're crucial. To understand two things, really, the state of the conflict in Gaza, but also why so many in Europe, the United States and elsewhere are responding in the way that they are. The idea that this is simply anti-Semitism uh, or is the result of a deep-seated disdain for Israel, which precedes this crisis. Of course, for some people, it is about a, a deeper critique of Israel. Of course it is. But for many, many others, Michael, on Telegram, WhatsApp, on their DMs, on various social media accounts, they will be seeing these kinds of images for the first time, and they will rightly be shocked. We were talking about this this yesterday in reference to a video by Tenehesi Coates, where he's sort of saying, this isn't complicated, right? And I think most people, when they see people who, who have been killed by an airstrike after it hit a convoy of ambulances, will think, this isn't complicated. This isn't complicated. You've got 2.2 million people penned in to an open-air prison, which is being bombed by one of the world's military superpowers, which is back to the hilt by our governments. Um, Israel has already given their justification for bombing the ambulances. You can guess what it is. They say they were transporting terrorists. Now, whoever those ambulances were transporting, if you bomb them in a very busy place where you're going to kill loads and loads of kids, you shouldn't do it. But were they carrying terrorists up? I mean, whether I, I hate the word terrorist in this context anyway. You've got two sides in a very bloody conflict, right? Both have committed war crimes. Israel committing war crimes by the day, by the hour. And they won't need to provide much evidence to Western politicians as to whether or not there was a militant in those ambulances. I mean, I don't even want to give this the respect that it's a, it's a reasonable claim to make. But the Western politicians will nonetheless back them to the hilt. However many schools hospitals or ambulances they bomb and however many children they kill they will back them they will back them but while western governments including our own are denying the reality in front of our eyes the united nations isn't philippe lazzarini is head of the un reliefs and works agency that's the body with oversight on palestinian refugees he spoke to cnn after becoming the first senior un figure to visit Gaza since the bombing started. Lazzarini said three UN schools, which were housing 20,000 people, had been hit in the hours immediately before he appeared on the show. He was asked this. How do you categorize this then? Is it accidental? Is it a war crime? Is it deliberately not distinguishing between uh, civilians and Hamas fighters? 
Listen, uh, according to international humanitarian law, there is a criteria of proportionality and also of uh, distinction. When I was briefing this week the Security Council, I said the number of people being killed so far is so staggering that this cannot be collateral anymore. The number of people being killed is so staggering that this cannot be collateral anymore. Really powerful. Also common sense, quite frankly. Lazzarini also said that the proportion of UN staff that had been killed was in line with the proportion of Gazans that the Gazan Health Ministry say have been killed. So it's more grim evidence that the Gazan Ministry of Health is not, despite what Joe Biden might say, inflating the numbers of casualties of this bloody brutal war. Um, One in every 250 Gazans has been killed by Israel in the past four years weeks, in the past four weeks. Israeli politicians are still wearing their intentions on their sleeves. Amihai Eliyahu is Israel's Minister for Heritage. He tweeted this yesterday, north of the Strip, so you can see here it's an image of a sort of the bombed out Gaza Strip. North of the Strip, beautiful as ever, blow up and flatten everything. Simply a delight for the eyes. We need to talk about the day after. In my spirit's eyes, we give out plots to all those who have fought for Gaza over the years and to the evicted from Gush Katif. So you've got someone saying, blow up and flatten everything, simply a delight for the eyes. This is not some right-wing pundit. This is a member of the Israeli government, a member of the Israeli government. And this is not new. We've been speaking about this on the show many times. Netanyahu says that Gaza is Amalek which means that every man, woman, child, baby should be slaughtered. Um, We've had the Minister of Energy saying that no tap will turn on water until hostages are released, clearly collective punishment. We've had Ministers of Defence saying that they're going to emphasise and prioritise damage over accuracy. The Israeli government are being pretty clear about their intentions here. We're seeing them kill lots of civilians, and we're seeing them say they're happy to kill lots of civilians. But Britain's leaders are still turning a blind eye. Keir Starmer was at a Chamber of Commerce event today. He was asked this. There's been accusations of white phosphorus being used of collective punishment, of bombing, of safe routes. What are your red lines when it comes to Israel's behaviour? Well, I set out my position clearly on Tuesday. And what we've seen is the worst terrorist attack on Israel since the Holocaust Um, and a humanitarian crisis that was already in existence in Gaza, which has claimed far too many innocent lives already. We have to uh, alleviate that. At the moment, the only practical way to do that is with humanitarian causes. And you, you know, To say to a sovereign country, when 200 of its civilians are being held hostage, they must give up their right to self-defense, is not, for me, the correct position. Bombing ambulances is not self-defense. Bombing hospitals is not self-defense. Bombing schools is not self-defense. And the way when Keir Starmer always answers these questions, he can only humanize the Israelis. What country? What country could possibly accept an attack on this scale and not respond with brutality, not respond by bombing hospitals, not respond 
by bombing ambulances. But what about the other side? What about the Palestinians? What people could tolerate being occupied for 75 years, being occupied for 56 years, being told they can't go down certain roads, being humiliated, being kicked out of their homes by settlers, being put under siege? What people could tolerate that and not respond in an extreme manner with violence, right? Have you ever heard Keir Starmer put himself in the shoes of the Palestinians? No. The Israelis, what country, what country, what sovereign nation wouldn't respond so strongly to a terrorist attack? We can all imagine being Israelis. Guys, oh, I can't really imagine being a Palestinian, can you? Um, also, my electoral strategy doesn't really involve me putting um, myself in the shoes of Palestinians because the last Labour leader, he was a bit too associated with brown people and I don't want that. I want to be associated um, with those we racialize as, as white, obviously. Um, Israelis are from all sorts of different backgrounds, but when it comes to this conflict and when it comes to how this is covered in the media, it's the Israelis who are like us, it's the Palestinians who aren't. Keir Starmer speaks as if the Israelis are humans and the Palestinians aren't. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak's priority is to stop people protesting against the massacres. So he has released this statement today. To plan protests on Armistice Day is provocative and disrespectful. And there is a clear and present risk that the cenotaph and other war memorials could be desecrated, something that would be an affront to the British public and the values we stand for. The right to remember in peace and dignity those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice for those freedoms must be protected. I have asked the Home Secretary to support the Met Police in doing everything necessary to protect the sanctity of Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday. Aaron, um, we've talked about what's going on in Gaza, um, and this is a reaction of our politicians. Rishi Sunak essentially saying, how dare people call for a ceasefire on Armistice Day? What do you make of it? It's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, it's frankly just absurd. I understand sensitivities on the Sunday, um, and I understand the idea that a protest would be going to the, the cenotaph on the Sunday. I personally understand that because it's a moment of commemoration, silence and whatnot. And of course, a large and vibrant protest is anything but silent. So I understand that. But the protest is on Saturday. The protest organisers, as, as I understand it, have said they won't be going to the cenotaph. That's something that's come out of the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign. And of course, if anybody breaks the law, that's that's for the police to determine and to deal with. That's not for the protest organisers. Um, if every if every protest ever held meant that the people organising the protest were liable for those on the demonstration, there would never be a protest. There would literally never be any kind of protest of more than 50 people. So I think that's a sensible compromise. And the point is, if you're only going to allow and permit protests which you agree with, uh, that isn't really how a free society works. I do think, Michael, it's interesting that for people on the right, conservatives, they've been going on about free speech, free assembly, the censorious left for years. Um, but when push comes to shove, they believe in none of it. I mean, some of them do. And I have to be honest, I'm, I, I respect those people. But many of them don't. And that's why the left has to defend and care about free speech. That's why it has to defend and care about freedom of assembly, freedom of association, freedom of political conscience. Because if we don't, nobody will when push comes to shove. So if you want, if you want to live in a free society, you have to defend those values. Nobody's going to do it for you. A Tory prime minister is not going to do it for you. A bunch of people who, who claim they're on the right and care about free speech but actually don't give a shit, they're not going to do it for you. And it's something that, frankly, I think the left has been too divided on for too long. Um, 
these are hugely important issues. As, as Rosa Luxemburg said over a century ago now, um, the left has to stand for free speech, particularly for those it disagrees with. Uh, in terms of our domestic political class, you know, the, the response of Keir Starmer was just ab abominable. How can we tell Israel not to respond? Well, of course, Israel is entitled to respond. In terms of what the UN said, it needs to be proportionate and it needs to delimit combatants from non-combatants. goes back to what I was saying on last Friday's show about just war theory. Those are two of the key aspects of it, proportionality and, and, and distinguishing between those who are legitimate targets and not. Um, Starmer seems incapable of doing that. We're now looking at 9,000 civilian casualties in Gaza. Again, people can call those numbers fake or whatever, but they're not fake. We're now looking at 9,000 civilian casualties in Gaza, which is more or less the same as Ukraine since February last year. Deaths, I should say, not casualties, deaths. So you're looking at huge numbers of people dying, and it's been almost a month now. Uh, we're just short of a month. Um, 9,000 people have died. So it's a question really for Keir Starmer. At what point would you ask Israel to stop? Clearly 9,000 civilian casualties isn't enough. Is it 90,000? Would you say something then? Or is it still in principle a matter for Israel? 90,000? 900,000? Where does it stop? What's the exchange rate of, of Gazan life? And also, killing 90,000 people, which uh, honestly right now, Michael, seems like the upper limit. This seems plausible. We're, we're a month into this and 9,000 people have died. Israel have only just started a ground invasion. I think, frankly, it's either that or 2 million people have to go to the Sinai in, in Egypt. Is that going to help get these 200 hostages back? Again, that seems like a moot. Nobody's asking this. Well, Israel has to defend itself. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. A, a state, regardless of your feelings about Israel, yes, it does have to defend its security of its own citizens. I get that. They presently have 200 citizens who are hostages. Pr completely inexplicable for me. And then finally on Sunak, um, like I say, it really gets to the heart of what's going on with the right and the centre-right. They don't believe in any of this stuff. They don't believe in any of it, Michael. You know, when, my, uh, when Farage was being debanked, I cared about that stuff. I care about it because it's going to hurt the left most of all. And people said, it's good, Farage has been debanked. Believe me. When Navarra is being debanked or somebody on the left is being debanked, many, many people on the centre-right who claim to care about these kinds of issues will be cheering it on. And we won't have a leg to stand on or any kind of integrity with the broader public, because up until that moment, we'd never defended those ideas, or, or just the concept that people should be treated equal under the law, people shouldn't be targeted because of their political views, as was the case with Farage. Uh, people should be allowed to peacefully assemble, um, to peacefully engage in democratic protest. People should, should be allowed to say things that might not even be mainstream, that should be allowed, particularly within minorities. Minority views within minorities, as you see with anti-Sinist Jews, are probably worthy of the most protection of all, uh, precisely because it can be very difficult for those people to say the things they believe. And look, that's how progress works. Sometimes the minority is right. Galileo, Copernicus, they believed in a different system in terms of how the, the, the sun and the earth relate to one another. They believed in a they believed in a, in, a, in, a, in a state of being where the, the uh, earth goes around the sun and not vice versa. Now, people had said that, of course, in uh, previous centuries, actually the best part of 2,000 years, but they were beginning to show models for it, albeit they didn't work. That was a minority view. It upset many people, but they were still right. 
Uh, and that, that is the important part here. If we want to live in free societies capable of progress, capable of solving their problems, you have to believe in free speech. You have to believe in protest. Critical. And the left has to defend this more than anyone. Otherwise, we stand for nothing, frankly. I wanted to get your thoughts on another aspect of this. I know, you, you know you're, you're well-read when it comes to history. And I've seen a sort of debate today where lots of people on, on the left are sort of saying, well, it, it seems to me that Armistice Day would be the perfect um, day to sort of think about the costs of war and therefore argue for a ceasefire. Then I've seen lots of people, I mean, you might want to call them on the right, I think the people I have seen not generally are on the right, who are saying, no, the point of Armistice Day is you've got to win the war. Right, So they're sort of saying it wasn't a ceasefire that ended the First World War. It was Britain and America winning and France winning and then forcing a peace on the Germans. And therefore, the lesson of Armistice Day should actually be um, that Israel needs to fight until the Palestinians will accept a, a humiliating defeat. Um, to me, this seems kind of a strange understanding of the First World War. I mean, my sort of mainstream understanding of the big wars of the the the, the 20th century is that, you know, the, the war against the Nazis was a just war. People keep saying, oh, and that means that everyone gets to do Dresden or everyone gets to do Hiroshima bombs, right? You keep hearing the Israelis say, that, oh, that was a just war, so therefore we can kill shed loads of civilians. I think there has been a sort of retrospective analysis of what went on in the Second World War and saying we could have won that without all of those massacres of civilians, right? But... Uh, the broad theory, no one's saying now, oh, we should have had a peace agreement with, with, with Hitler. That was a war where you did need to fight it till the end. But the First World War, to me, I mean, I thought the lesson we all learned from that is that sometimes you enter into wars that don't really achieve anything apart from lots of spilt blood. Um, and the fact that we, we fought World War I till the end and then forced a pretty you know, bad peace on the Germans ended up leading to the Second World War. So the message from Armistice Day, for me, you know, it doesn't seem to be, oh, yes, you should fight till the end. Ceasefires are ridiculous. I mean, I'm guessing you have better knowledge of the First World War than I do. What do you make of this whole whole debate about the relationships between Armistice and, and a ceasefire here? Well, I think it really betokens the fact, Michael, that we're, we live in a society where basically nobody has had to fight in a major conflict. Basically nobody. Um, that includes the you know the sixty five year old seventy year old men who claim to and I'm not being ageist, but who claim to somehow have, have fought the Second World War or something you know like back in my day we did this. Do you think there were no? We got rid of national service I believe in, in this country in the mid 1950s. The best part of seventy years ago, right? It's very hard now to find somebody who did their national service. Um, so it's a strange one because I think you know people almost trivialize conflict more having not been subject to it. Very sad thing to say, but I think that's true. Uh, and in terms of the First World War, you're absolutely right, Michael. It was a completely avoidable catastrophe. It was effectively, it was a completely pointless war amongst European nations. I suppose what it did do is it blunted German ambitions for expansionism. So you could say that was a, you know, a good thing or a bad thing or whatever, depending on your perspective. Obviously, for those who aren't German, it would be a good thing. Um, but there had been various expansionist wars of one kind or another, the Franco-Prussian wars or Italian wars of unification and whatnot. What was different, of course, with the First World War is that it generalized into something far larger and more protracted with millions of people dying, partly an outgrowth, of course, of the technology, um, the, the, the arrival in European warfare of obviously machine guns, trench warfare, um, made things very, very slow and interminable. Of course, that changes again with the Second World War. Blitzkrieg is premised upon very fast or comparatively fast tanks. Um, and 
planes to some extent, being able to being able to sort of get ahead of infantry and whatnot. But the First World War is an objectionable, horrible war. Uh, I, I, I had been raised, probably as you had, Michael, to think that the consensus was that it destroyed the flower of Europe. So that's not why we say, you know, never again and have a poppy for Armistice Day. But it is a very neat metaphor in so much as we lost the flower of Europe. We lost the best, brightest young men across this continent. French, German, British, those from Austro-Hungary, Italian, Ottoman. It was a devastating war. You know, the, there was a young, well, he wasn't that young, actually. He was, he was about 41. One of the key thinkers, Michael, in generating the theory of relativity was sending letters to Albert Einstein. He was a German Jew. Um, he died in 1916. He died in a trench fighting a pointless war. This man was critical in understanding what would become the theory of relativity a century ago. How many more people did we lose just like that? Of course, Wilfred Owen is another exceptional example, one of the war poets. There are hundreds of individuals like this who would have gone on to add extraordinary value to our civilization, and they were lost for no particular reason. And the worst thing of all, Michael, is, of course, the way that the First World War was resolved with the, the Treaty of Versailles lays the foundations for the Second World War. So, I mean, that's actually a direct, um, a, a direct response to somebody. Well, you need to win the war because then the war is over. No! That war finished in 1918. There was another war that starts 21 years later because it wasn't resolved in a, you might say, in a, in a at least reasonably fair way. Well, there's the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and that literally gives rise to the border conflicts we see in West Asia for the next century. You know, arguably, what's going on with Israel-Palestine, it begins with uh, the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. If you look at the borders between various Arab countries, it begins with the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. Oh, well, we did this thing, we won, it was all over, it was all good. No, it created far more problems than it resolved. Far more problems. Uh, the First World War begins because of a, a South Slav, a Serbian nationalist who, who kills an aristocrat, and it then becomes something which kills millions of, of men from every corner of the continent. The idea it was a good thing. The Second World War is, of course, very different. But as many people have talked about, Michael, including Peter Hitchens, who wrote a great book on the Second World War, uh, The Phony Victory, um, you know, we have a habit as a culture to retrospectively look at all conflict through the prism of the Second World War, partly, of course, because it's the most recent great war, but also because it was a virtuous war. So it's convenient for us as a, a civilization, as a society, to all of a sudden look at all the wars we participated in as being virtuous. Of course, you know, many weren't. I mean, the, the majority of wars are either done for reasons of realpolitik or uh, just outright wars of aggression. Um, so that's that's the purpose of the the Second World War, but it's a it's a mythology which is at least it maps onto the reality of the situation. But no, the First World War was very different. And finally, you know, German defeat doesn't come about because of you know fighting them, fighting them, fighting them. Partly, of course. But a major role was played by the German Imperial Navy, which effectively gives up. Um, and you have massive political dissent within the ranks of the German armed forces, particularly the Navy, which, of course, then is followed up not long after by the Spartan uprising, a failed uh, revolution in Germany uh, in involving radical socialists and communists. So it's a bit more complicated than that. And my worry with anything like this, Michael, and a bit like the, the Second Iraq War, 
is that you have a war. People think, yeah, we'll win the war. All the problems are sorted. No, these things create more problems than they solve. Second Iraq war. What do you do? You spend tens of billions of our money in this country. We lose 179 personnel, service personnel. The Americans lost far more. We lost more in Afghanistan too. And you do all that for what? You create the conditions for ISIS to emerge. You create the conditions for Iran to have more political influence in West Asia than it did previously. In Afghanistan, what do we do? What's the long-term legacy? Spending huge amounts of money, losing hundreds of people. What did we do? Well, we increased opium production for a little while. It's not that simple. But of course, I'll go back to my original point. If you're a society which is not acquainted with war, hasn't experienced war, and it's horrendous realities, then this kind of trivialization of it is all too easy. Talking of trivialization, this is how our impartial press is discussing Sunak's letter. Take a look at this from Sky News earlier this afternoon. With me now is our crime correspondent, Martin Brandt. I mean, Martin, some people will say, what sort of country have we become when the Prime Minister even has to issue a warning like this? What sort of country have we become when the Prime Minister even has to question whether or not people should be protesting on Armistice Day? I mean, that's just... He was the host. If he was like the opinionated guest, fine. Or if he was a GB News host, fine. This is Sky News, you know, they have pretenses to be similar to the BBC, impartial. So what kind of country have we become? Next story. Almost two million Afghans face expulsion from Pakistan after a deadline for them to leave came and went this Wednesday. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. And Deutsche Welle has spoken to families crossing the border. The line at the Torham border between Pakistan and Afghanistan stretches as far as the eye can see. Families and trucks piled high with their belongings wait to be processed. The situation they describe is dire. We don't have anything to feed our child. We had some vegetables yesterday, and today he has only had a cup of tea. Money talks, but we don't have any. Last month, Pakistan's interior ministry announced the expulsion of all undocumented immigrants citing security concerns after an increase in terror attacks on its soil, originating in Afghanistan. The crackdown affects an estimated 1.7 million Afghans in the country, drawing criticism from rights groups and the Taliban government, who are overwhelmed by the influx of people with nowhere to go and few opportunities for work. As you heard there, the Pakistan government has cited security concerns to justify its expulsions. Um, that doesn't stand up, of course, when you're talking about 1.7 million people. And the policy has been implemented in a pretty brutal way. Pakistani authorities began demolishing houses in the hours before the November 1st deadline. Houses that many Afghans lived in for decades. Now they face a life under the Taliban the same group that caused many to flee Afghanistan in the first place. I can restart my business there, but I'm worried about my girls' education. My daughters are in the fifth and sixth grade here. But in Afghanistan, the Taliban government doesn't allow girls to study above sixth grade. Now I'm worried about the education of my girls and what will happen to them in the future. It was just such a horrible decision like for any parent to have to make. And I mean, you could, I don't know if it was his daughter, but you could see that, that young girl in the background sort of jumping up and down. And you just have to worry what her future will be back in Afghanistan. Um, to find out more about the expulsion of Afghans from Pakistan, I spoke earlier today to Obadullah Bahir, a lecturer at the American University in Afghanistan, who is now completing a PhD 
at the New School in New York. I started by asking him why the Pakistani government has made this decision now. The fact of the matter that this comes after a meeting of the interim government of Pakistan, in which the interior ministry then comes out and announces that out of, I think, 24 suicide bombers in Pakistan last year, 14 were Afghan nationals. Now, this is a claim, it's unsubstantiated, but also in the same breath, then they say, and we are going to expel 1.73 million Afghans. So they make it very clear as to what the reason is for this. And the time frame, the how of it as well, is meant to be a punishment in itself. So um, it's a collective punishment, and it's set at an impossible time frame. Um, I was talking to someone at the border yesterday, and they were saying, uh, the fact that the Pakistanis announced three to four weeks ago that they were going to do this by the end of the month. Uh, it took a week for the Afghan uh, Taliban to take notice, start doing something about it. But then even at the end of the day, even international organizations such as the UN haven't been able to prep uh, and be there to receive these people who are returning now in the thousands every day. And um, it's, it's, it's a horrible uh, situation at the border right now. Are these mainly people who who fled to Pakistan when the Taliban came back to power in, in, in 2021? Or is this people who've been moving ever since sort of the Afghanistan war in 2001? Or is this, you know, who are these 1.7 million people? Why did they go from Afghanistan to Pakistan in the first place? And, and when did they go, I suppose? So there is a large population of Afghan refugees in Pakistan, and some of them have gone 30 to 40 years ago, uh, most of these people uh, that they call the illegal refugees, the non-registered refugees are people who recently moved. Most of these people took visas to come into Pakistan. You have to understand that after the U.S. withdrawal, no foreign embassy was left in Afghanistan, which meant that a lot of Afghans had to go to Pakistan, which is the only accessible country, having to pay $1,000 or more for a Pakistani visa uh, through bribes. They come into Pakistan to wait for their case to be processed. Like you've seen, the American cases of almost 25,000 people in Pakistan were waiting uh, for news on um, them getting out. Uh, they haven't received that. The Pakistani government aren't willing to let them stay. And the same goes for a lot of other countries um, whose um, asylum seekers are in Pakistan. So what's happening is um, they're throwing uh, the baby out with the bathwater. This basically change in policy isn't new. Pa Pakistani government has been doing this for a very long time. Every time their relationships relations would sour with the Afghan government during the Republic of the past 20 years, they would shut down the border. They would start harassing the Afghan refugees. This happened after a famous attack at a school in Peshawar in Pakistan, um, after which the chief minister said that and Afghan was responsible or this attack happened, was planned from within Afghanistan. And oftentimes it's a deflection of responsibility. Uh, the attacks that are happening in Pakistan today are by the TTP, which is the Tehrik Taliban Pakistan. These are a branch of the Taliban that were formed in Pakistan, that trained in Pakistan. And somehow the larger Afghan population is responsible for their actions. And it doesn't make sense no matter how you look at it. Even if you're blaming the Afghan Taliban, the interesting bit is a senior Pakistani journalist just the other day said that they had renewed passports for uh, Taliban leaders uh, who are cabinet members. He said three cabinet members have Pakistani IDs, you know. So it's quite ironic that they are willing to renew IDs for 
um, Taliban leaders, but somehow punishing the larger population. Also, it's not just the people, they call them the illegal refugees. First off, there is no illegal refugee. Every refugee is a refugee, but um, they're talking about people who aren't registered as uh, with a card called proof of registration. But we saw by the hundreds at the border the past two days, uh, people who were pushed out of Pakistan who had those registrations as well. So it's not like they're just pushing out uh, non-registered uh, refugees, well, they're just creating a climate where it's impossible for Afghans to stay in Pakistan. Um, people who you rent with aren't going to extend your lease. Uh, people aren't going to do business with you. Banks won't take your money. Uh, the cops will keep harassing you. Uh, so at the end of the day, you end up with no choice. So um, they're going into Afghanistan with whatever that entails. What situation awaits people in, in Afghanistan? We've we've spoken to you a number of times sort of since the Taliban came back to power in 2021. Um, I mean, what are the latest developments? What is Afghanistan like at the moment? I mean, depends who you are, Michael. If you're a man who served in the government or you've served in the army, uh, you are in a very difficult position because you're going back to uh, the Taliban who have announced a general amnesty, but we've seen uh, thousands of cases of violation of that amnesty. People with personal vendettas have hunted down um, ex-military people and ex-government members and, and killed them. And on the other side, we have seen uh, the fact that there has been extreme deterioration in women's rights in Afghanistan. Um, we see that uh, girls can't go to school or high school or women can't go to university. So imagine if you're a woman who was seeking to go abroad and seek asylum, and now you have to return to Afghanistan with basically no future in sight. Um, and again, the world keeps claiming that they care, but uh, they don't. And we're at the mercy of neighbors. I keep saying that every country has a difficult neighborhood, but we have a especially uh, difficult neighborhood. And no one cares about the spillover uh, that their actions cause. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not a bright prospect. There's just so many heartbreaking videos that you can watch of people crossing the borders, people crying, saying that they had created bonds that their kids didn't even know Afghanistan anymore. I mean, these were kids who were born in Pakistan, had spent their whole lives there. Now they're coming back. Uh, they were in tears. I mean, the Taliban, for their credit, were at the border. They were receiving uh, the Afghan refugees. But I mean, I wish they had created a better regime and a state for these people to return to. Maybe they wouldn't have fled in the first place. I mean, Maya Angelou says you don't uh, leave home unless home is the mouth of a shark. And uh, they're being pushed back into the mouth of the shark. You sort of said a moment ago, you know, the world doesn't seem to care too much about the situation of Afghan refugees. I mean, beyond, I suppose, pressuring the Pakistani government potentially, I mean, what what, what could the West be doing? I mean, obviously the West was very much implicated when they were, uh, when they went to war with the Taliban and then occupied the country for 20 years. But I mean, given where we are now, what would be, you know, what would be your demands as it were? Uh, I don't make demands. That's a, a very uh, hard term to use. But um, I guess, look, there's always a principle of I am here because you were there. You know, so um, the Americans came to Afghanistan, um, not on our invitation. Uh, they occupied our country for 20 years. Right. And now whatever we are facing is caused by that. But it's not even 20 years, even before that, when the Soviets invaded. 
even before the Soviets invaded. The Americans were already investing in the country, trying to make it a proxy state for itself, trying to engage in the great game with the Soviet Union uh, there in Afghanistan. So a lot of where we are and how we're suffering is caused by outsiders, even Pakistan. And this same Pakistani establishment actually welcomed the Taliban into power. The only and first government in the world that said, we congratulate the Afghans for breaking the chains of slavery. When I was talking to you, when I was going into hiding um, and, and hundreds and thousands of people were fearing for their lives, the Pakistani government were congratulating uh, the Taliban. They were the first military intelligence uh, that showed up in Kabul uh, to work with the Taliban. And now somehow two years later, they're willing to punish the whole Afghan population based on the souring of their relations. So like... I, when I was writing about this, I kept thinking, what do you invoke, right? I mean, this question of yours, what do I demand? And, and Pakistan isn't a signatory to refugee conventions, so there's no point asking them to abide to that. Um, what else do you use as leverage? And at the end of the day, there's only one thing left. You just ask whoever is involved with refugees to respect humans' right to dignity. Like, this is not dignified. Uh, when you push people out within day's notice, uh, 1.73 million people, that's a very big number. That's probably one of the, and it's not going to be just 1.73 million. This is the start, and they're going to push out more. Um, it's going to be the biggest forced expulsion in, in modern history. And no one's batting an eye. I mean, you're one person that I'm talking to. How many big international medias do you know that are talking about this? How many uh, stories have you seen covering this? And how many governments have you seen taking a stand on this? So um, again, the world is so busy with other conflicts that are more important to it. Um, and somehow uh, Afghanistan is a tale that they would much rather forget. And with it, their responsibility to it. And I don't know what one can do. That's why we just turn around to the Taliban. We literally have to turn around to the Taliban and tell them, please try to make things a little better. We will tolerate this. We would much rather face oppression from you than humiliation from an outsider. Um, but we, we, we can't seem to get that. We're, we're stuck between two very horrible worlds. That was Abidullah Bahir speaking to me earlier today. Um, Aaron, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this on this topic. Seems like a massive story, not getting that much pickup in the press. I suppose you know that there is a, a massive war going on with one of our major allies. Now, but, uh, do you have anything to add on this on this phenomenon? Well, firstly, you know, there's a huge number of Afghans in both Pakistan and Iran. Huge numbers um, for for obvious and understandable reasons. But secondly, Michael, and I think this is so key and it's so um, relevant, I think, to a Western slash European audience which is that Pakistan played a central role in the formation of the Taliban. Um, Pakistan trained 90,000 members of the Mujahideen in the 1980s. 90,000 of them were trained by the Pakistani ISI. 90,000, including Mullah Omar, remember him? You know, the, the sidekick of, uh, well, he was the Taliban's top guy, even though Osama bin Laden was, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda and you know, the people responsible for 9-11. Mullah Omar was the Taliban's top man. He was trained by the Pakistani ISI. The Pakistanis used and looked at the Taliban as a tool to extend regional influence. Um, they gave them money, resources for a long time. First, like I said, the Mujahideen, but even through to the 1990s. When the Taliban took Herat in 1995, the Pakistanis, and particularly the ISI, were supporting them. And so it's very reminiscent of what happens with the United States, Michael, and the Europeans repeatedly, which is 
We help and support these people. They're great. You know, Rambo 3, this is dedicated to the people of Afghanistan and the Mujahideen getting rid of Russia. 20 years later, oh my God, they've just brought down the Twin Towers. The similar vibes. We need to understand that meddling in the affairs of other countries, looking at other countries as pawns and tools of geopolitical influence, can often be highly counterproductive. Stop doing it. Um, and the fact that Pakistan did all of that, and now they've got 1.7 million Afghans there who they want to get rid of, maybe you shouldn't have funded and supported religious fundamentalism for decades. Just a thought. I have an update for you, something breaking since we went live. There's another sit-in um, which has occurred at a major London railway station, this time at King's Cross, where protesters have gathered calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. It's good to see a tactic which I'm sure we will we will see repeated um, over the coming days and weeks. Um, of course, we're seeing sort of similar um, protests in America at the moment as well, I, I imagine, elsewhere. Let's go to our next story. King Charles has been in Kenya this week, and he's been trying to make amends for Britain's colonial crimes. It is the intimacy of our shared history that has brought our people together. However, we must also acknowledge the most difficult times of our long and complex relationship. The wrongdoings of the past are a cause of the greatest sorrow and the deepest regret. There were abhorrent and unjustifiable acts of violence committed against Kenyans as they waged, as you said at the United Nations, a painful struggle for independence and sovereignty. And for that, there can be no excuse. In coming back to Kenya, it matters greatly to me that I should deepen my own understanding of these wrongs and that I meet some of those whose lives and communities were so grievously affected. None of this can change the past, but by addressing our history with honesty and openness, we can perhaps demonstrate the strength of our friendship today. So the news here is that King Charles didn't offer quite an apology, but he did express regret about Britain's past. And we should talk about what Britain's past in Kenya is. Britain began colonising the land that would become Kenya um, from 1888, and British authorities would go on to forcibly take land, pen the native population in reserves, introduce forced labour, and commit all of the other injustices associated with colonialism. But specifically, King Charles was referencing Britain's response to the Mau Mau uprising. The Mau Mau, formerly called the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, um, were a militant group that fought British rule throughout the 1950s. They took up arms and in their struggle killed a number of civilians. And the British response was fierce. They bombed Kenyan towns and cities where they believed the Mau Mau lived. They interned over a million Kenyans in barbed wire villages where food and water was limited and where movement was heavily restricted. And over 100,000 people suspected of being part of the Mau Mau were rounded up and put in concentration camps. This is a former detainee who had been a member of the Kenya Africa Union, so an organisation that wasn't the Mau Mau, describing his experience. <laughs> कभी कभी इकुम नहीं जाता तो 
quasi altri vari che tu e caracolo e cudo cotta corretta in amore e bullo. Adora parico, tu tu io cudo e cudo cocaina bio, ora vuoi mai, o cugua, e cugua, cugua. Di gina bogo non gasbola. Leo tragedi ora, tua caracola, tua carina chiugo, tu e cara adotta hata ija, cotta cohicure, tu le sei doaca, tu ti mi accorgo. Io ho detto che se siete in un'area, se siete in un'area, se siete in un'area, se siete in in their repression of the Mau Mau uprising, the British killed over 11,000 people, the vast majority of them not involved in armed resistance. And it was all in the name of wiping out what they called a terrorist group. This is how the uprising was covered in British newsreels at the time. In Nairobi, capital of Kenya, Europeans and Africans still walk the streets in fear of the dreaded Mau Mau. For it is that band of fanatics whose bloody deeds have cast a dark shadow across the face of Kenya. Troops are in the streets of Nairobi. Sir Evelyn Baring, the governor, salutes the men of the Lancashire Fusiliers who have flown in to help clear his colony of the Mau Mau menace, which has struck fear into Kenya's very heart. A black cloud of suspicion hangs over all in Kenya. And until the Mau Mau are destroyed, the innocent too must suffer. So we're presented with a terrorist group committed to a reign of terror. Of course, there is no mention of why they might have been fighting or why occupation and colonialism might be at the root of this. And the British journalist at the end there tells us, until the terrorists are destroyed, the innocent must inevitably suffer. The innocent must inevitably suffer. Aaron, we like to think we've moved on from media coverage like this, but can you think of any contemporary parallels, any other examples where we've got people dismissed as terrorists and people justifying the collective punishment of a civilian population until that terrorist group, or so-called terrorist group, is destroyed? Just a few, Michael. Just a few. And also, with regards to Mau Mau and Kenya, there were also a few conservative, or rather a few Labour MPs, who led the national debate in terms of the truth of the matter. Barbara Castle went to Kenya she said what is happening there is awful. She compared it to the Gestapo under the Third Reich. That was what Barbara Castle did. You might not agree or disagree, but that's what she did. Um, and she highlighted appalling, appalling atrocities there. We don't know how many people died. There's a great book by Caroline Elkins. I've got it written here. A Britain's Gulag, which was the most recent... Uh, sorry, that was the first book she did. Legacy of Violence, which came out in 2022. Massive book. I read it a couple of years ago. Uh, I think I probably read it before it came out. I read like a proof version. You get to do get to do that when you're, you know, a journalist. It's really long book, so six, seven hundred pages. Fantastic, fantastic book, amazing book. I read the first one, which I think came out two thousand five, six, and then that one. She's a Harvard academic, a hugely, hugely impressive historian. And I think if you're interested in Kenya, what happened? Carolyn Elkins is the place to start. So that's the first parallel, Michael, with what we have today, um, is that we have certain Labour MPs 
who say things which are not really very savoury. Shouldn't we be saying that in polite society? Uh, we don't look at them like that now, do we? And I suspect the same will hold true for dissenting MPs who criticise, for instance, Israeli um, security policy and its judgments in the last month. I think in 70, 80 years, those calling it out will be viewed in a certain way. Of course, that's for history to decide, not me. And then uh, in terms of the sheer numbers, we don't know how many died, but it was a lot. It really was a lot. I mean, Elkins puts the numbers at, you know, hundreds of thousands. Um, but of course, this was effectively a, a form of civil war as well. So you can't lay that entirely at the hands of the British in so much as people were also acting on their behalf. Uh, but it was a really appalling time. Around the same time as that, of course, you've got Malaya, what was called the um, the emergency, the Malaya emergency. Very similar tactics. You have huge numbers of people, most of the civilian population in Malaya, put into concentration camps. Um, they were forcibly resettled. Uh, and also you have the uh, the use of, um, I believe, Agent Orange, I believe, and maybe Napalm, which, of course, the US then deploys in Vietnam because they look at what the Brits do so successfully in Malaya. You're fighting uh, in a jungle, counterinsurgency warfare, guerrilla warfare tactics. This is what the Brits do. We're going to do the same in Vietnam. So it wasn't that long ago, Michael, that we were doing some pretty abysmal things. I know people like to say, well, the British Empire was a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, this is literally the British Empire. You can at least go to the end of the Second World War. But many people like to think that the worst excesses of British imperialism are 100, 150 years old. Of course, to an extent, that's true. Um, but some pretty barbaric stuff was still happening in, in living memory. You know, we're talking the mid-1950s here. There are many people out there who were alive or their parents were alive then. And that's the political context we're in. And I think that's actually supremely useful when thinking about ongoing events, you know, like the illegal war of Iraq, for instance, or what's going on right now in Palestine and, and, and Gaza. Uh, this is a very useful context. So, like I say, Caroline Elkins, very formidable writer. Uh, I'd love to interview her one day on Navarra to talk about precisely this. I want to go a bit more into sort of the present parallel because obviously sort of uh, reading about this and watching the videos about how this was covered at the time, it reminded me of how the Western press is, is talking about Israel, Palestine and Hamas, right? They are saying essentially Hamas, whatever you think of their tactics, you have to recognize that they came out of a particular context of occupation, of injustice, right? That doesn't justify killing grandmas and children, right? But you can't explain what happened on October the 7th without giving that context. And that's exactly how the Mau Mau were covered. They were just this, this group of irrational, bloodthirsty, barbaric terrorists who had to be destroyed. You know, no reference to the context at all. I look through, you know, there's quite a lot of path footage about this, um, about the Mau Mau on, on YouTube. It is very interesting to watch to sort of see the parallels and how this was talked about. Then at the end of, of that clip that we showed you, you had someone saying, you know, to destroy the Mau Mau, you know, we don't like to do it. We don't want to um, make life miserable for Kenyan civilians. But it's not us. It's not us that are responsible for this. The responsibility lies with the Mau Mau. And until the Mau Mau are all rooted out and found, generally an impossible thing to do, by the way, if people are part of a popular struggle, until they're completely destroyed, what we are going to have to do is make ordinary Kenyans suffer. And that's exactly what we've heard about here. And, you know, when we talk about in the, the, the past, right, it's, it's, it's common sense. King Charles will say, well, of course, yeah, that was collective punishment. Of course, we shouldn't have done that. When it comes to a situation right now, the media is exactly the same in 2023 as it was in the 1950s. 
oh no, this isn't collective punishment. It's ridiculous to call this collective punishment. What this is, is Israel, who are, you know, they're good people, good, they're a good country, like us, civilized people. They are trying to root out a, an awful terrorist group. And if those terrorist groups hide out among ordinary people, it's not our fault if we end up killing a load of civilians in the process. That's the terrorist's fault for hiding among the people. Every resistance group ever, anywhere, I, do I even want to use the word hides? But stays among the people. They're often of the people. But also in a situation of asymmetrical warfare, you are generally um, going to hide out in, in, in civilian areas. Because if you, if, you know, if, you, if you have a big bunker and call it, this is our ministry of defense, and you're up against an army which is a thousand times stronger than you, that ministry of defense, which you've just sort of put a sign up uh, on top of, isn't going to last very long, is it? So in a situation of asymmetric warfare, when you've got a, a colonized people fighting back against a colonizer, that's how they behave. And when we look at this in the past, we can be adults about this. We can say, oh, were the Mau Mau terrorists or were they freedom fighters? It's actually up for debate. You know, but it, It's not the, as if the historiography says, oh, history has proven the Mau Mau right, because there's a debate about whether the Mau Mau actually sped up the process of decolonization or whether they slowed it down. It's not exactly the same situation as sort of the ANC, where it was the ANC who ultimately um, became the, the government after the, the British left or after you know, an apartheid colonial system ended. The Mau Mau were sort of, you could call them the radical flank um, of, of the fight against colonialism and potentially you know, some of the tactics people who are against colonialism might still want to condemn. I mean, it doesn't seem particularly urgent to do that. Um, but we can have a sensible conversation about were those tactics right? And obviously, we have to always have, as the big meta-story, the reason anything, the, the reason any of this is happening, the reason any of these difficult tactical decisions have to be made by a, a colonized people is because there is an imperial occupier there, right? <laughs> so y y you're failing to see the wood from the trees if, if, if you're just saying, well, the Mau Mau are terrorists. But if the Mau Mau, if, if this situation was right now, right, you'd have someone of Kenyan background or whoever, they go on the BBC, first question, do you condemn the Mau Mau? Right. They wouldn't say they wouldn't be asking them about the the concentration camps that in this case you know a hundred thousand people were put in and, and tortured. They wouldn't be asking you about the million or so people who were in barbed wire villages. Their their movement restrained. By the way, the justification for restraining their movement was also exactly the same as the justification for putting Gaza under siege. Oh, if we let them move around freely, they'd just do terrorist attacks. Right? That's what we say about Gaza. But if these people, if the, the Kenyans in the 1950s, or if the Kenyan, if this if this situation was right now, um, the Kenyans would be going on BBC and say, do you condemn the Mau Mau? And then that would be the whole conversation. 10 minutes wasted, do you condemn the Mau Mau? Aaron, do you think I'm overstating the similarities here? No, I think that's exactly what would happen. That was, that's, that's literally exactly, you know, can you, imagine, can you imagine if we had Twitter in the 1920s when you had the various boycotts by Indians, Indians uh, to get rid of British, uh, British colonialism? Do you condemn this? Oh, this is bad. Oh, God, these boycotts by Indians of various British businesses, that's bad. Don't you know you're putting little Timmy out of, uh, you know, his father, this imperial uh, diplomat and business owner? You, you, his children can't go to Harrow. Haven't you thought about that? That's the kind of stuff we would have. You know, when we had the rail strikes in this country, Michael, you know, last winter, BBC Online. Here are the three people who couldn't go to a Britney Spears concert. That's the kind of stuff you would see. What you have to understand, Michael, is that something I, I have grasped as I've gotten older is very few people actually believe, believe in the wider principle of liberty, freedom for everyone. Very few people. Not very few people. It's, 
it's not the majority. They believe in it for themselves, which, of course, is why you get liberal democratic government, you get trade unions, you get all sorts of things, because people are really interested in, in advancing their own interests. But when it comes to other people, it's, 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 it's unusual. It's unusual to think, well, actually, that person over there deserves the same thing I have over here and which I take for granted. It's very unusual. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't think you're overstating the, the, the case, Michael. But isn't it interesting? How many Brits, and I certainly didn't learn this at school, are taught about what happened in Kenya? I talk about what happened in uh, in Malaya in the 20th century because it's so recent, or even Britain's um, administration of of the Palestine mandate. You know, we lost hundreds of people in what was Palestine. Most of them were killed by Zionist terrorists. You know, nobody knows this. The King David Hotel bombing. Nobody knows this. One of the biggest ever terrorist atrocities against British service personnel ever was done by people who would go on to play central roles in the Israeli government after the foundation of the State of Israel in 1948. Nobody knows this. Nobody knows this. Terrorists can only be around people with kafirs. So, um, yeah, I think history is a very powerful, uh, a very powerful thing when you know it. And, uh, you know, maybe we should have a history podcast here at Navarro Media, Michael. You know, we've got Navarro FM, which is very good. Maybe we need just history, the right history, the good history to counteract all the nonsense you get in legacy media, which just to finish, Michael, you're just not, you're not being informed of anything. You're watching TV, you're watching GB News, BBC, Sky, Who's learning anything when you have the, the, the anchor hectoring the guests for 20 minutes? Will you condemn? Will you apologize? You know, I, I go on, I'll happily condemn Hamas. Of course I will. Of course I will. I'll also condemn uh, the Israeli government, which is allowing for illegal settlements to happen every day for 30 years since the Oslo Accords. I'll also condemn them. You don't want me to do that. But that's not part of the game. The game here is you just condemn these people. And if you don't, you're a bad person, and that's then the story. What I think or don't think is not important. What is important is that we have two and a half million people living in an open-air prison. We have 200 Israeli hostages, which ideally are liberated, uh, and we have a settlement in, in, in Israel-Palestine, which is awful, and is only going in one direction. That's the story, but no. Uh, broadcast journalists are obsessed with, will you condemn? Will you condone? Why are you a bad person? They don't tell us what to think, Michael. This is the worst part. They don't tell us what to think. They tell us what to feel. And if you don't feel how you're meant to feel, then they get very angry and they demonize and ostracize. Uh, and we know that full well here at Navarro Media. We know very well how it works firsthand. And look, that's only ever meant we redouble our efforts at building something better right here at Navarro Media. So in, in terms of fairly brutal governments killing civilians and then coming up with excuses and shifting the blame. Um, we have a modern day example. So an IDF statement has just been released about the bombing of the ambulance convoy. They say a Hamas terrorist cell was identified using an ambulance. In response, an IDF aircraft struck and neutralized the Hamas terrorists who were operating within the ambulance. We emphasize that this area in Gaza is a war zone. Civilians are repeatedly called upon to evacuate southward for their own safety. And that is a completely sick statement. Right. On the one hand, whoever whoever was in that ambulance, right, it's in a very very crowded place. Now, I don't want to say I, I I've got no idea if they they could just be lying. We know that the IDF lie all the time. But even if they were telling the truth, even if they were telling the truth, bombing an ambulance just outside a hospital where there are shed loads of kids around is not proportionate. It's not proportionate. And this idea that you have, we told them to leave their home so they can't complain when we kill them. That's not an argument. We we told these one million people to 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 leave their homes um, in a place without any electricity, energy, water, food. So when we then kill them when they're standing near an ambulance, they can't complain. They can't complain. 
obviously, many people did move to the part of Gaza where the Israelis told them to go. They got bombed and killed anyway. They got bombed and killed anyway. So you move south, you get bombed. Oh, maybe you were next to a terrorist. You stay north, you get bombed. Oh, you should have moved south. It's, I mean, it's gaslighting seems like a ridiculous word to use when we're talking about life and death. But I mean, you can see where I'm coming from. Let's go straight to our next story at this point. Rishi Sunak might soon be out of a job. So perhaps with an eye on his next one, he's been using his time in Downing Street to network with high net worth individuals. And you don't get much higher than this. I think we are seeing the most disruptive force in history here. Um, you know, where we have for the first time, we will have for the first time something that is smarter than the smartest human. Um, and that, I mean, it's hard to say exactly what that moment is, but, but there will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want to have a job for sort of personal satisfaction, but the AI will be able to do everything. So, I don't know if that makes people comfortable or uncomfortable. It, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, that's why, that's why I say if you, if, you, if you wish for a magic genie <laughs> that gives you any wishes you want, and there's no limit, you don't have those three limits, three wish limits, nonsense, uh, you just have many, <laughs> many wishes as you want. Um, so, uh, it, it, it's both good and bad. Um, one of the challenges in the future will be how do we find meaning in life? If, if you have a magic genie that can do everything you want. I, I, I do think we, we it's, it's, it's hard, you know, when, it is, when, when there's new technology, it tends to ha have, usually follow an S-curve. In this mm -hmm. case, we're going to be on the exponential portion of the S-curve for a long time. Um, and you'll be, able to, like, so you'll be able to ask for anything. It'll, it, it won't be, a, an, we won't have universal basic income, we'll have universal high income. So in some, in some sense, it'll be somewhat of a leveler um, or an equalizer because you know, really, I think everyone will have access to this magic genie, um, and you'll be able to ask any question. It'll be, certainly be good for education. You could, it'll be the best tutor you could, and, and the most patient tutor. Uh, <laughs> sit there all day, um, and uh, but there will be no shortage of goods and services. It will be an age of abundance. So that conversation between Rishi Sunak and Elon Musk um, followed a summit on AI safety hosted by the Prime Minister. Um, my question for you, though, Aaron, Elon Musk, to me, seemed to be summarizing your book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism. Um, do you think he's a convert? Well, I don't know about that. I know that Grimes, the mother of his child, is. She was seen uh, reading it by somebody I know. She also posted the audiobook onto her Instagram. You know, it is funny for me, like I get belittled by sort of nobody's at the observer and then i have quite senior people at facebook or whatever big tech companies reach out and say i love your book it's fantastic anyway um you know that's just that's just the way the world works but the good news is that people like rishi sunak are so supine they'll do and think whatever the american bigwigs tell them so i'm very happy when actually like i say people in the us take it seriously because almost a process of osmosis People in Britain who aren't particularly radical will start saying, yeah, that's a really clever idea. Yeah, that's correct. Because they just they just imitate what the Americans say. They've doing, been doing that since the 40s. In terms of what he said there, the goods and services have been more abundant than ever before. That's correct. Goods and services will be made more productively with less human labor over time. That is the trend. More and more uh, goods and services made more and more efficiently with less and less human labor forever. The problem, therefore, is, Michael, that um, how do people buy them? So you have all these wonderful goods and services being made more efficiently than ever before, but of course, with the diminishing component of human labor, 
well, given that people buy the goods and services with wages they get from selling their labor, jobs, you have a problem of what's called under-consumption or, or demand in economic parlance. So one solution, of course, is UBI. It's interesting he's explicitly saying that a UBI would be, be part of that. Um, I, I personally don't think that's needed in really the medium to short term. Uh, but the reality of, of automation and AI at the moment, and really for the next 15, 20, 25, 30 years, is that actually, he said the S-curve, what it's going to do is create a J-curve, like a hockey stick. It's going to exacerbate um, inequality, both regional and between individuals, global too. Uh, already, California gets around 50% of uh, venture capital across the whole United States. Uh, with AI, that concentration of VC, big money, uh, would be even more. Imagine big tech over the last 30 years, now times it by God knows what. Uh, with regards to geopolitics, uh, there was a great paper out by PricewaterhouseCooper. I think $15 trillion worth of value is going to be created between now and 2035. Almost all of that, about 75% of it's going to China or the US with regards to AI. Huge amounts of value captured by these two AI superpowers, in the words of Kai-Fu Lee, uh, who was heading up Google's operations in China before it closed. Uh, so that means major problems with regards to regional inequality within countries, individual inequality, which is already bad enough, and of course, global inequality, with many countries and, and regions not benefiting from this technology. Uh, so there are huge problems, huge challenges. And one of my major misgivings around people obsessed with the singularity, what if it becomes sentient, existential risk? I'm happy to, to discuss all of that. We talked about that actually with somebody, Ian Hogarth, who's now Rishi Sunak's you know, he's heading up the AI task force, very smart guy. I talked all about, about all that with Ian. I'm happy to talk about it. But the major challenge with regards to AI over the next, like I say, 15, 25, 30 years is going to be what it does to inequality. That's the major challenge. Uh, if you look at what big tech did to the high street, look what Amazon did to your local high street over the last 25 years. Now imagine what AI is going to do to not the blue collar jobs, that when people think about automation for a long time, we thought, oh, well, manufacturing. No, white collar jobs, information intensive, repetitive jobs. Think accountancy, legal services, parts of medical healthcare, radiology, administrative work, consultancy. That doesn't mean all those jobs disappear, but many tasks within those jobs disappear. Therefore, you need far fewer accountants, people in legal services, uh, medical support staff, consultants. Uh, so you're going to see less and less people needed in these massive sectors. And of course, the standout industry for all of this is uh, vehicles. People that drive for a living constitute huge numbers of people in the labor market in both this country and the United States. Now, once you have self-driving cars, which is a form of machine learning, that means millions of people in the US no longer have a job. Is this happening next year? No. Is this happening in a decade's time? I don't think so. Is it going to happen? I think it's probably inarguable that at some point self-driving cars will be safer uh, than ones driven by human beings, at which point, if there's a moral argument at all, it's about not allowing people to drive. Because bear in mind, Michael, 30,000 people die every year because of car crashes in the US, car accidents. 30,000 people die a year. If all of a sudden you're in a situation where you say, well, if we have self-driving cars, only 5,000 people die, you have a pretty strong moral case to not allow people to drive. So uh, lots of jobs are going to go. Uh, the question is, without an attendant politics of redistribution, at the very best, you're going to see crises of, like I say, under consumption, demand. At the very worst, you're going to see the kinds of inequality which, frankly, are politically unmanageable and which will test our 
political and economic systems to their very limit. Let's look at one more moment from that conversation between Sunak and Musk. So a journalist in the audience asked Rishi Sunak how to get more people starting innovative businesses. Sunak, in response, talked about maths education. He, he loves that topic, attracting high-skilled immigrants and what he called pro-innovation regulations. But he also said this. The thing that is tougher is the thing that Elon talked about, which is culture, right? It's how do you transpose that culture from places like Silicon Valley across the world where people are unafraid to give up the security of a regular paycheck to go and start something and be comfortable with failure. You, you talk about that a lot. I think yeah. you talked about it more in when you were playing games, right? But, but <laughs> like you've got to be comfortable yeah. failing and knowing that that's just part of the process. And that is a, it's a tricky cultural thing to do overnight, but it's an important part of, I think, creating that kind of environment. You know what makes it easier to take risks? To think, maybe I can leave my regular employment, my regular job, and, and take a risk with, with some innovation, with a new business. A welfare state. If it fails, if you're Rishi Sunak and you start something and it fails, that's fine because you're married to a billionaire. Your parents are pretty rich. They sent you to one of the poshest private schools in the country. If you're Elon Musk, you can also take those risks. His dad was also a, a very rich man in South Africa, wasn't he? I think he owned diamond mines or something. So you've got two guys who both came from very privileged backgrounds and they're saying the reason why we don't have more entrepreneurs is culture. There's a cultural issue here. Maybe there's an economic issue, which is that people can't afford to right? It's very, very hard to take risks unless you have some security to fall back on. We had a Swedish-style welfare state. It'd be much easier you know, to go out and say, okay, I'm going to take a risk. If it fails, yeah, I won't necessarily, if it fails, you, know, you, 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 you expect some risk. I won't necessarily be able to live a luxurious lifestyle, but I'm not going to get kicked out of my home where rent is 900 pounds, right? We have not set up a society where you can take risks. We haven't even set up a society where, you know, if someone wants to improve their opportunities later in life by taking an adult education course, they can, because they wouldn't possibly be able to pay their rent if they're not working two jobs throughout the week. So uh, this is why it's just very, very galling, let's say, to hear Rishi Sunak and Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, who had a very rich father, and the UK Prime Minister married to a billionaire who also had very rich parents, say, you know what? People need to take more risks. It doesn't matter that, you know, you start a business, you fail. Yeah, you know, you, you, you might not be as rich as you were going to be, but you're still going to be able to fall back on your incredibly rich dad. Not everyone has that luxury, and it's not a cultural problem. Final story. Western politicians are turning a blind eye to Israel's war crimes, as are lots of Western journalists, but not all of them. Take a look at this from high-profile MSNBC host Joy Reid. Given these bombings are being done using our tax dollars, perhaps we should ask some questions. For example, how does bombing a densely populated land strip filled 50% with children constitute self-defense? How does bombing hospitals, churches, mosques, and UN schools constitute self-defense? Well, you say, if Hamas fighters are hiding in the hospital using the civilians as human shields, okay, let's say they are. Are you arguing that flattening the hospital and killing newborns in their incubators and their moms in the NICU, cancer patients, someone with a broken leg, the doctors, nurses, and just the women and kids hiding in the hospital, that that's not a war crime? Because you would be wrong, according to international law. Well, why don't the people in Gaza just turn over Hamas militants to the Israelis? Okay, how do you propose they do that? Hamas is the de facto government in Gaza, and they're the ones with the guns. The leaders of Hamas aren't even in Gaza, and if they were, 
If you were a teenager living in an open-air prison, getting bombed day and night by, let's say, Mexico, and Mexican police kicked in the door and raided your house anytime they wanted and turned off the water and cut off your food, what are you going to do? Side with them? Help them while you're dying? That's like asking why black folks don't help or trust the police. Okay, but after 9-11, we bombed Afghanistan in self-defense. Yeah, we did. And did that put an end to al-Qaeda or get bin Laden? No, it did not. Because like Hamas, bin Laden wasn't in the country we were bombing. President Obama got him 10 years later in Pakistan using special forces and without bombing scores of kids to death. Bombing Afghanistan did buy us a 20-year occupation that got us more enemies in the Muslim world when we scooped people up on the battlefield and dragged them off to Gitmo. And when we threw in a gratuitous war against Iraq based on lies by a Bush administration that traded on our anger and our fear, the world rose up against us as we committed torture and tossed former Iraqi police and soldiers into makeshift gulags, and those prisoners later turned into ISIS. Oh, and the Taliban are back in control of Afghanistan. So again, what is the goal of mass bombing Gaza? Is it to find the people Hamas militants abducted on October 7? Okay, how? By flattening whatever shelter they're taking from the bombs? The bit where I was watching that, because as I say, she's not, you know, she's not a radical leftist, right? She's sort of associated with the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. But the bit I saw it where I was like, oh, wow, she went there was, you know, I, I, I thought maybe she was going to make the argument, you know, they're all kids when Hamas got elected. They're also living under um, the tyranny of Hamas, which is sort of like a line which some sort of liberals use. She's like, no, if, if, if you were being bombed by an occupying power, are you going to side with the people that's bombing you or are you going to side with the people resisting them, right? Which I thought was a, a radical a, a argument, which lots of people, you know, are, are reluctant to make in the press. So I thought it was really cool to see sort of like a, a liberal mainstream host making that argument. It's presumably not a coincidence that Joy Reid is black. We showed Tennessee Coates sort of yesterday making similar arguments to her. And it it does seem like there is a bit of movement in America here. And I suppose especially maybe because you've got, you know, certain black people who are part of the Democratic establishment who who might in many ways be a bit centrist with their politics, but they can see racism and racial injustice when it's staring them in the face. I think also, Michael, there's the Tucker Carlson factor which is that you have now Republicans you know, massively disagreeing with establishment consensus on foreign policy. doesn't mean you agree with everything Tucker Carlson says, but I think if you're a smart Democrat operative or somebody in the media, you go, well, he's got a point. I mean, if he can dissent, why can't I? And a lot of what she was saying there, Michael, the exact words could have been said by Tucker Carlson. You don't have to like the guy to acknowledge that which I find really, really intriguing. And the point you're saying about um, people who are radicalized by what's going on is entirely true. If you say this in British media, you will get slammed. But nevertheless, it's it's the case. You know, you might be a, a Palestinian man in Gaza, 40-year-old man, two children. You might hate Hamas. You might have hated them in 2006 when they last won an election. But then you lose your two children because of a, a bomb. What do you think that person will do? Seriously. What do you think that person's going to do? How do you think they're going to feel? Who do you think they're going to hold responsible? Realistically. And if that was you, if those were your children, what would you do? It's, it's not a stupid question. Uh, now, it's not to legitimize what Hamas are doing. But as I said a while back, right at the start of this thing, every single bomb that falls on Gaza and kills innocent civilians is a recruiting sergeant for Hamas. Now, you can dismiss that. You can say it's untrue. I think it's patently obvious. 
Uh, and so the question of what's the right strategy here is the correct one. And I think there is a very real possibility of Israel doing the exact same thing the US does after 9-11, which is massive overreaction, which, you know, arguably was the intention of Hamas. These kinds of um, actions, part of the motive there is to get the uh, adversary to overreact in their response and to create points of vulnerability. And I think there's a very real possibility of, of Israel doing that. As we said earlier on, 200 hostages right now in uh, in, in, in Gaza, 1,400 people died, but 9,000 Gazan civilians have died. What's it got to take for it to be proportional? 90,000, 190,000, 290,000? And these are the questions which aren't being asked by apparently liberal democratic societies in the West. So it is very good to see, Michael. I think we're also at a tipping point with regards to foreign policy. You know, the fact that Biden thinks that they can just give 14 billion to Israel, no questions asked. That moment has gone. The public, whether it's in the US or in this country, cares about foreign policy in a way it did not 25 years ago. For better or worse, right? You cannot put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, and the idea that you're just spending taxpayer money willy-nilly, that already is upsetting people in the US with regards to Ukraine quite deeply. It's a major issue, actually, for Tea Party Republicans. I think it'll be a major issue if, if Trump gets back into the White House. Um, so watch this space, because the uni party in both uh, the United States and here, the party establishments of, the, of these two parties in our first-past-the-post systems, that fake consensus they have on foreign policy is really at odds with how much the public thinks. I think that's very well put. Um, Aaron, thank you for joining me. Before I let you go, can you tell our audience what downstream interview is going out this Sunday? We have Slavoj Žižek, Michael, um, and so on and so forth. We talked about all sorts of stuff. Uh, watch it at 6 p.m. Uh, I don't know if you did the support ask as well, Michael, because we can only get guests because of, of uh, our supporters. Uh, big guest. And I love how big downstream is getting, Michael. We're, we're coming from Navarra Live. We're trying to be as big as you guys. But Zizek is, Zizek is definitely up there. Premier League, uh, Premier League guest. So don't miss it. 6 p.m. this Sunday. You have been knocking it out of the park with downstreams recently. And you also gave me a great segue there when it came to fundraising because we have some news on our fundraiser. Um, yesterday, we were very close to hitting our goal of 2,000 new regular supporters. Let's take a look at where we are now. We hit it. There was the jeopardy. I was trying to do jeopardy there. We have hit uh, over 2,000 new supporters. We want to get up um, to 5,000 new supporters to make this organization really, really sustainable so we can continue growing and get ready for 2024. Um, so thank you to everyone who's chosen to back us. And if you're a new viewer and think that what we're doing is worthwhile, please do consider signing up for as little as £1 per month. Just head to navaramedia.com slash support. That link is in the description. Um, for now, thank you all for tuning in. This show will be back on Monday from 6pm. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.